The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are honored that you join us each week for Conversations That Matter. That's why in 2020, we've tried to pivot to make sure that we are covering the things that need to be talked about, like the plague of racism in America and how the church is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. We're also coming up on our 150th episode, which would not be possible without listeners like you engaging each week in the conversation. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendorf for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Rob Ryersey. Rob is the author of Running for Our Lives, his second book, He's the executive director of Brand New Congress and the political director of Vote for Common Good, as well as the co-pastor of Vintage Fellowship in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Rob, thank you for joining the conversation. Uh, thanks, Andy, for having me. Now, there's a lot about your story and work that we're going to need to unpack, uh, but let's start with just Rob. Outside of work and writing, tell us more about you. Yeah, I uh, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm a I'm a diehard Cleveland Browns fan, uh, which, you know, is just kind of the, the tragic story of my life, maybe. And uh, <laughs> uh, I've married and have uh, have four children, two of whom are in college, one in high school. And then we've got one who's in preschool. She's our, she's our oh no, what have we done, baby, who, <laughs> who came along a lot later. Uh, enjoy uh, hanging out with my family and watching TV and smoking cigars and you know that's that that's pretty much me outside of you know work and and everything else I'm doing in life if 
if I'm not working, I'm probably watching a Browns game and smoking a cigar. Did did you believe all the hype last year when everybody's like, oh, the Browns are going to make it to the Super Bowl, or were you uh, a bit of a realist? Well, I, I, I'm a I'm a lifelong Browns fan, which means um, I was I, I was completely expecting the worst, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so we have uh, we have learned not to. Uh, not to fall into any hype though. I was, I, I had told my wife, this is more excited, more excited than I had been about a, uh, uh, a season headed into a season in a very long time. So of course it was a, you know, full of crushing disappointment, but that's life as a Browns fan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm a lifelong New York Mets fan. So I'll, I'll also uh, and and the yep. suffering of that. Um, though my favorite uh, Browns moment in the last year has nothing to do with the actual team itself. Uh, we had Walter Brueggemann on the podcast, and he still has on his website that he is a diehard Cleveland Browns fan. And this was right really? when the season started, and they were doing uh, awful as unexpected. And so I mentioned, you know, the Browns to him. Well, I had no idea in the off season he wrote this long diatribe about. Um, why the NFL is the worst possible thing in propagating, um, you know, white rich people in America. And, you know, I was like, well, you still got this up on your website. So sorry, you know, for bringing this <laughs> up, but you know, uh, it was, it was a great That's moment funny. to see, uh, such a, a wonderful scholar just go off on one of our institutions. That's really great. I had no idea that he, uh, he was a Browns fan. That's, that's fantastic. Oh, to clarify, not anymore. So um, not anymore. Well, yeah, don't don't bring it up with him. A former Browns fan. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, as I mentioned before, you're a co-pastor with your wife Vanessa at Vintage Fellowship. Tell us more about the church. Yeah, I grew up um, in uh, in a fundamental Baptist denomination um, that was, you know, kind of really, really strict and and conservative and and fundamentalist. Uh, I, I joke with folks now that I, I live in Arkansas, I, I say to people like the denomination I grew up in, we weren't allowed to have anything to do with Southern Baptists because they were too liberal. Uh, like that's just to kind of put put on the spectrum where where we were. Uh, and and I you know grew up in that and went to Bible college and seminary and pastored in that denomination. And uh, and then ultimately went through a, a crisis of faith, a uh, where I had, where I just called into question, you know, everything I had been taught to believe. And I had to um, really reimagine Christianity, reimagine my faith, if I was going to, if I was going to keep it at all. And, uh, and that led to us leaving that denomination and, uh, and moving here to Fayetteville, Arkansas, to start a church uh, about 13 years ago. Um, and it was a church we, we said at the time, like, I have to, I have to pastor a church that I would go to, even if I wasn't being paid to be there. Um, and you know, I needed to be, I needed to pastor a church where I, where I as the pastor was free to be myself, um, along with everybody else. And, uh, and so, so that's what we did. Uh, we, we started, a, a church about 13 years ago, vintage fellowship, um, kind of identify as progressive evangelical whatever you know whatever that means we're basically a place for for everybody and anybody um, we're a place where people can can express their doubts and their questions and their concerns we're a place where people can can really truly be themselves and uh, as we all try to figure this thing out together and um, yeah so that's that's been really kind of the the joy of my life has been uh, has been serving at, at vintage and 
um, along with with my wife Vanessa, who's who who co-leads the church and, and the rest of our team. Uh, before I was in the current position I'm in as a senior pastor here in um, Louisiana at, at University of Baptist Church, I was CBF's church start coordinator. And so I helped people start churches all over the country. And I always loved co-pastor models, uh, just mm. the dynamics of understanding your giftedness and your strengths, where you end, another person begins, and um, how you fit those gifts together to to lead a congregation. Um, we only started in my time there at CBF one church start with husband and wife as co-pastors. Um, and it, Nathan and Carrie Dean um, do a fabulous job. Of course, we had actually Candace and Frederick Brock. They started one at the end of my time in San Antonio. I was always fascinated with that because so much of your life as a pastor is wrapped into the church. It's such, a, it's such an emotional and a spiritual vocation versus for many of us, we can leave at five o'clock and we're done for the day. You know, we might have to answer an email, but it's different. So how have y'all, um, how have y'all, uh, you know, finagled the dynamics of co-pastoring mm -hmm. a church um, as a couple, as a family? How, how, how do you work through all that? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, you know, throughout, throughout my whole ministry in the, in the, you know, 10 years I pastored before we started the, the, the church down here, when, when Vanessa was just, you know, quote unquote, the pastor's wife, um, you know, we always functioned as a, as a team and um, it, it never was just kind of my job. It, it was churches has always been kind of uh, our, our life together. And, uh, and so when we started vintage um, you know, that, that didn't, that didn't change much. Um, you know, what, what happened was, you know, the, the recognition that, um, that um Vanessa was not just a pastor's wife that she was a full equal partner called by God to 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 be in the the work of the ministry and uh and so her going through the the ordination process and uh and becoming ordained um vintage actually like bringing her on staff uh paying her the same amount that they pay me um, you know, all of, all of those things were just real strong affirmations that, that, you know, she was, she was called to this as well. And for, you know, for those of us, you know, I mean, we grew up in, in the type of fundamentalism where, uh, you know, women, <clears throat> women weren't allowed to, 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 to preach, to lead, to teach a Sunday school class with men in it, you know, you know, it, even women who worked outside of the home, that was a little bit suspect. You know, the idea would be for, for women to, you know, stay home and, and take care of their families. And, and so, you know, her now being the, uh, the, the co-pastor and I even, I even joke most of the time that, that she's, she's kind of the, she's the lead pastor of the church at this point. Um, it was, uh, um, when I, when I ended up, getting involved in politics, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that part of the story. But when I got involved in politics, I, I would say it was like we, we switched seats in the, in the front of the car that I went from, from driving the car, uh, to being the, you know, the passenger in the front seat. And, and she took over driving the car and kind of being the, the lead pastor at church because, um, you know, my time and, and, and focus was kind of devoted elsewhere for a, for a bit of time. Um, and, and that's been, you know, it's, I, I, it, it, we have always functioned as a team and, and so, you know, pastoring the church together is just, you know, it's just, 
it's just kind of the it's the life that we live together and therapy helps <laughs> <laughs> now um if we're honest outside of the cbf churches i know in arkansas the state doesn't necessarily breed progressives so what's it like being a progressive evangelical mm-hmm. in the land of opportunity yeah it's uh uh it can be lonely at times um you know we we have you know in in our our town and in our area um you know we've got the large traditional evangelical mega churches we've got like the you know the the southern baptist mega churches that you know uh produce you know presidents of the southern baptist convention and and whatnot uh you know we so like all of that is you know deeply ingrained in the ethos and the culture of this area um one of the things that I've realized over time is that when you have a high concentration of kind of conservative, traditional Christian religion, you also will have a high number of people who have been hurt and wounded by that and uh, who have become disillusioned, who have gone through their own deconstruction, who have, 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 you know, really kind of seen the, the, the underbelly of the, you know, industrial church complex that, that exists out there. And, uh, and so, you know, our, our church exists, um, to kind of fill the niche of, you know, people who have, who have gone through a a, a journey or in the midst of going through a journey of, of trying to figure out what faith looks like for them, um, in a, in a way that's a, a little bit different than, uh, than what they've experienced in the past. And, you know, we've got some other progressive churches in, in our town, um, that are, that are mainline denominational churches, um, you know, whether they're, they're Lutheran or Episcopal and, and, you know, for a lot of people, um, that maybe grew up in evangelical churches, um, they, you know, appreciate much of what those churches are doing, but the worship style doesn't connect with them because that's not what they grew up with, not what, what resonates with them. And so as a progressive evangelical church, what, what we're able to do is provide a, a, a soft landing place for people who, you know, want a, want a worship style that's more similar to an evangelical church, but want, uh, want the content and, and, and what is, what's taught and, how we're figuring this out together to be from a more progressive perspective. So, you know, we, we kind of function as that, you know, the, the place for, for people that, that need, need a different expression after they've kind of gone through um, kind of the traditional stuff that's out there. Now you have a new book out uh, running for our lives, a story of faith, politics, and the common good. This book is a story of your run against Steve Womack, the entrenched Republican congressman of Arkansas's third district. You wrote, the lesson I had to learn and I'm still learning is that daring to do something great and failing is really not failing at all. I wonder if you'll take us back to the conception of the idea to run for office. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was not something that was on my radar at all. It was not something that I, that I planned on. Uh, but I, I woke up the day after Election Day in 2016, uh, after Donald Trump had been elected president and was uh, just kind of absolutely horrified, uh, horrified at the direction that our that our country had had chosen to go, uh, horrified that our our leader was going to be someone who um, who 
I thought lacked the character to be president, uh, lacked the competence to be president, and whose policies and uh, and approach to governing I did not trust at all. Um, and I was I was horrified that the two tribes that I've been a part of played such a big part in making that happen. Um, I'm a I'm a lifelong Republican and uh, was horrified that my party had chosen. Um, to to lead the country down this path, and you know, as a as a white evangelical, uh, and you know, looking at the polls, eighty one percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Um, you know, horrified at the thought that my you know that my religious tribe had 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 brought this about as well, and I, I had the sense that I needed to do something. I, I just I, I lived with this ache that. I needed this, this moment calls me to do something, but I had no idea what that meant. Um, there, one day I, I went off to the office and I, I came home and, and Vanessa was working from home that day. And I walked in the door and she held her phone out at me and she had listened to a podcast about, uh, an organization called brand new Congress that was recruiting people to, uh, regular, work people, regular everyday people, not politicians, uh, recruiting them to, to run for Congress. And, uh, she had listened to this podcast with the founder of brand new Congress talking about this vision. She held her phone out at me and she said, you've got to listen to this. You've got to do this. And I don't like, I don't don't know if people have like the day where like you get up and you have your coffee and you have breakfast and you you know, you do your work and you just go through a normal day. And then you go to bed that night thinking, I might run for Congress. You know, it's like, it's a totally bizarre thing. So I began talking with some friends um, about this and, uh, uh, you know, some folks that I know uh, who had also listened to that particular podcast and just kind of bouncing around this idea. And and the way brand new Congress works is that people have to nominate you uh, to, to run. Apparently, some folks in in my community nominated me and uh and a couple of weeks later my phone rang and it was somebody from brand new congress saying hey um you know we're from brand new congress we'd like to talk to you about about running for congress and that's what that's what began for me was a you know a journey that i that i never really expected to go on as you think about the conception of this book why why did you choose to write a book about your experience? Well, you know, it, it turned, I, I learned so much through the process, um, and had, you know, what I thought were, you know, so many kind of bizarre experiences that, you know, things that took place during the, the course of the campaign. Um, I, I wanted to write the book to give people, um, an inside look at like what it really feels like and, and looks like to to run for office. Um, I don't, there's not a lot out there that's like a, an inside look at that. I also wanted to to write a bit about um, you know I, I I'm a bit of a unicorn as a as a progressive Republican and a progressive evangelical. Like that's something that people are like, wait a minute, that's a thing. And I wanted to I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And then I also wanted to. Um, I really, I, you know, I've, I've got, I think I've got a, a bit of a pastor's heart where I look at our political system and I, I see how 
hurting people are and how often the way people engage in politics right now deepens those hurts uh, in one another. And I, and I really wanted to address some of the things that I think are really hurting our political system and, and encourage people to engage differently. And so, you know, I, I kind of tell my story along the way and, and, and talk about the lessons I've learned and, and talk about, you know, my, you know, how I wish people would engage differently and talk about what my hope for the future of the Republican party might be, you know, it, all of that is kind of mixed in throughout with, with my story and, and, and how the campaign unfolded. This CBF podcast is presented to you by the center for congregational health. At the center, we help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one-size-fits-all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. In the book, you talk about the emotional toll this campaign took on yourself mm. and your family. And you wrote, I lived with constant tension. At campaign events, I needed to project confidence and stability. I needed to show voters that I had the right combination of a grasp of the issues, the empathy for their concerns, and the personal character that would make them trust me with their support. Talk to us a little bit more about this tension that you experienced. Mm. Yeah, I, nobody, I was not prepared. Nobody prepared me for the emotional roller coaster that it is to run for office. Um, at one minute, you're feeling like, hey, I could win this thing. Uh, and then two minutes later, you're feeling like, this is the biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. <laughs> and, and, and you ping pong back and forth between these emotions. And, you know, you put yourself out there to be judged. You're asking people to make a, an assessment of you. And, and, you know, depending on your personality type, I guess, um, you know, some people kind of react to that differently, but that, you know, you're literally putting your name and your face out there for people to, to, you know, give you a thumbs up or thumbs down. And, and it is just, it's really, really taxing. And then you layer on top of that. So many times I would, I'd be at events, I would be doing house parties, I'd be talking to, to voters and people would, would, would entrust me with their stories. Um, and you know, how their, how the, the current system has, has hurt them so much and the pain that they're going through and, um, and, and look to me, you know, for hope in the midst of that, uh, you know, whether it was, you know, that it was talked with a mother whose, whose daughter had, had broken her leg and gotten a, uh, a, an infection and they didn't have health insurance and, you know, were face literally facing eviction from their home as a result of that. Um, talked with a, a mom who was just terrified about sending her her sons out into the world um you know they're young african american boys and her her teenage sons you know terrified that like you know they they might go out one evening and and not come home um because of you know police violence and 
you know, so many things that, that, you know, people entrusting you with these stories, it, it, I mean, it, it can be, it can be a burden. And, you know, when you're, when you're in it because you really want to, uh, make a difference in people's lives, um, it, it can be a, it can be a lot to carry, um, because you, you, you really want to, to enact some, some policies and some measures that are going to, that are make a difference for folks. Not to sound cynical or, you know, to lead you down a certain road, but do you think established uh, politicians feel the same tension? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I, I would hope so. Um, but when you, you know, when you are an establishment politician who's got um, political party and all of its apparatus behind you, when you're taking corporate PAC money and you don't have to, you know, and so you've got millions of dollars in a war chest from, from you know, big corporations that have in their lobbyists that have donated to your campaign, you know, you're not you're not sweating over every penny um, that you have to raise, that you have, and, and how you're going to spend it. Um, and you know, you're, you're not, you're, I, I'm not sure that you live and die with every vote, um, because you, you're just kind of, you know, playing at a different level. Um, and I, and I actually think that, that that's part of the problem why our, our elected leaders are so off, seem so often disconnected from real people. It's because they are disconnected from real people. And uh, they they don't they don't have to raise money from real people uh, from regular regular working class Americans. They don't have to uh, they don't have to hear their stories. They can easily insulate themselves. Like you know my you know my opponent um, you know did um, back in in 2017 did four town halls in the course of a week in our district and um, hasn't done one since. And you know he doesn't have to hear the stories of, of regular regular uh, everyday Americans living in his district because he's he's chosen to isolate himself. And I I think that has has caused our elected leaders to be out of touch. And it's uh, I think it's a real problem. And I don't know. This might seem like a strange question, but um, did running for office make you a better pastor? And if so, how? Mm, that's a good question. I. Um, I, I, uh, I, I, when I, I coach candidates now and I, I, I tell them often that it's a line that I heard Rob Bell say that when, when he has a, a new book come out, basically there's seven questions that get asked. Uh, and, uh, and all you, you, well, you, you know, there's little variations on it, but, but essentially seven, you know, the same seven questions get asked in every interview. And, uh, and it's, it's pretty much the same thing in, in politics as well. Like everybody's going to ask the same seven questions and you, you know, if you, if you have the answers down to those seven questions, you're going to be able to handle things pretty well. Uh, this is a question I, I haven't heard before, so I, I don't have a, an answer off the top of my head other than to say, I, I think so. Um, I think any experience that gets you closer to people so you can hear their stories so that you can, you can talk to them, you can understand their burdens um, and what they're really going through in life. Absolutely. is going to make you a better pastor. Um, I think the other thing that this, that this run did, and I, and I write about this a little bit in the book, you know, I, I, I grew up with, with an approach to um, the political, to, an approach to faith, which really saw the gospel as um, 
essentially, you know, uh, uh, insurance from going to hell. You know, you get saved so you can go to heaven. And and it was a very otherworldly experience. And the gospel was all about getting people into heaven. And and through my deconstruction that I went through, I kind of recognized that, um, you know, that's that's not, that's not the whole story. And, uh, and the gospel actually has much to do with life here on earth as well. And, and so what running for office gave me the opportunity to do was to embrace a more holistic understanding of the gospel that, yeah, what we do on Sunday morning is important, but who we vote for on Tuesdays is important as well. And the policies that get enacted by our government and how they impact people's lives, all of that is really, really important. All of that is interconnected to how we live in this world and if we're going to live in this world with love and peace and joy and 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 live out that those kind of kingdom values for everyone to experience um whether they whether they express christian faith or not like that all of that it it just gave me a much broader holistic view of of how everything works together one of my favorite chapters in the book is why we why do you vote the way you do um, you wrote, there is also no way to discount the role the party loyalty plays in people's voting patterns. Some people simply believe that their party is completely right and other parties are completely wrong. I've come to believe that we need a new electoral motivation in American politics. Take us a little deeper there. Yeah, I, you know, people, I, I, I don't know how often people think about their voting criteria, like why they vote the way they do. Um, you know, some people it's just reflexive because of tribe loyalty to the party. They want their team to win. They they vote straight Republican. They vote blue no matter who, whatever it might be. Um, you know, some people are vote. Uh, you know, they, uh, on the basis of of one issue or another, uh, whether it's uh, because um, you know whether it's the abortion issue, they 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 think that they're voting purely on on that one issue, or some people are, you know purely vote on on the issue of guns or on the issue of taxes. Um, I think so often, I think what happens very easily is that people vote when they go into the voting booth, they're thinking about what's in it for me. Uh, who's going to give me the biggest tax cut? Who's going to uh, preserve the culture that I want preserved? Who's going to protect the rights that I think need to be protected? And, it, and it's very insular and and uh, and and I, I think often very kind of selfishly motivated. Um, and then you read what Paul says in Philippians, where we ought to do, he says, do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, but consider others above yourself. And I think when he says do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, um, that ought to include voting. And I think, you know, what I've, what I've come to see, and I, and I work with Vote Common Good now, which, which is really trying to urge religiously motivated voters, white evangelicals and white Catholics, to instead of um, using the other kind of impulsive or selfish reflexes as their voting criteria to consider the common good as their voting criteria, to think about not just what's in it for me, but what's in it for everybody. And to, instead of just voting for themselves, vote for the, the incarcerated person who's on death row, vote for them, vote for the, 
the the child who's been separated from his from his parents at the border. Vote for the undocumented worker. Vote for the um, for the planet. Vote, you know, consider other people when you when you go into the voting booth. Loving your neighbor is something that we that we do, um, you know, in in action and in words, and and also when we vote. And and so I I want to encourage people to consider other people to consider the common good um, when they go into the voting booth. And I think that would really bring about a change in in the voting patterns, especially of evangelical Christians in America. So 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2016. That's a, a fact that a lot of us contemplate almost every single day. Um, what will it say about the church to the world if that statistic repeats in 2020? Uh, I, I think it will... I think it will communicate. I think it will just reinforce the idea that that many people out there have that the church just cares about itself. Um, that that evangelical Christians in America care about their own power, their own comfort, and uh, and and don't care about anyone else. Um, they 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 want to continue the things that will make them feel comfortable. Continue the things that will. Um, will keep them in positions of influence and, uh, and everybody else be damned. Um, and, and I think, you know, Donald Trump has proven, um, in his character and in his policies that he's, he is not fit to be president of the United States. And, and, you know, <laughs> the same people who, uh, who, uh, you know, who, Criticize Bill Clinton or criticize Barack Obama are 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 completely okay with with uh, with with Donald Trump and it it, it just utterly mystifies me um, and you know and I know like the reaction is yeah but you know he'll appoint pro life judges to the bench and I you know and and like didn't Jesus say like what if what if we gain the whole world but lose our souls like what if we gain the whole Supreme Court but lose our souls was it was it really worth it like um, you know, they're, they're, it just it just mystifies me. Now you're the executive director of Brand New Congress. Um, this organization launched in 2016 with the mission of getting regular people into office to represent average Americans. Uh, tell us a little bit about how this organization got started. Yeah. So so Brand New Congress was started in 2016 during the, the 2016 presidential election by a group of folks. Uh, a lot of them worked in the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, in 2016 who recognized that we put a lot of emphasis, we put a lot of focus and resources and energy into who we elect as president. And that's good and that's appropriate. Uh, but at the same time, who we elect to represent us in Congress often gets neglected. And as a result of that, Congress has like single digit uh, approval ratings and uh, a 90% reelection rate. You know, it's there's this huge disconnect. And so the idea of brand new Congress is, well, you know, what if we put the same kind of focus, the same kind of energy, the same kind of resources into who we elect to represent us in Congress, so that no matter who the president is, um, we've got a Congress who will who will represent us. Um, and so that was that was kind of where BNC was born. The original vision was to 
you know, recruit 400 people around the country who would, who would run for office all on one unified platform and one unified campaign. It would be kind of this grand throw the bums out kind of movement. Uh, turns out that that, that, that proved to be like way too, too massive an undertaking to pull off. And, uh, and so, you know, we've pivoted and scaled back. I, I say now we're going to get to that 400 eventually. It's just going to take us a few elections to get there. So in, in, in 2018, we had 31 candidates that we endorsed and supported. Uh, and, uh, uh, one of them got elected and made it into Congress. I don't know this. I don't know this freshman congresswoman from New York. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if people have heard of her. Uh, but you know, we're the group that recruited her and uh, and uh, and supported uh, her run for Congress. And um, and now in in 2020, we've got about 40 candidates uh, that we're supporting. Uh, around the country and uh, in for the United States Congress and for the United States Senate and, uh, you know, hoping that we can make, a, you know, get several more wins and continue to make a big difference. I hear she makes a mean old fashioned. <laughs> I, she's ne- I've never had her make me. I, I've never had her. She's never made me an old fashioned. I'll have to. I'll have to ask for that the, sometime when we're together. <laughs> I talked about some of the past candidates. Who are some of the candidates you're working alongside for 2020? Yeah, we've got 40 candidates that we're working with. If you know people want to uh, want to see who they are, you can go to brandnewcongress.org and click on candidates and, and see them. They're all around the country. We've got folks like Adrian Bell in uh, the Houston Galveston area, um, Mike Siegel in the Austin area of Texas. Um, um, <clears throat> Cara Eastman in Omaha, Nebraska, who came just a few thousand votes of, away from winning in uh, in 2018, and we are you know working with her to help close that gap here in 2020. We've got a whole bunch of candidates in New York. It's kind of the AOC effect, uh, and so we've got folks like uh, Tomas Ramos, uh, Paula Jean Swearingen is running again in 2020 uh, for the U.S. Senate in West Virginia. Um, Charles Booker is one of our, our newest uh, candidates that we've just announced. He's running against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky for the U.S. Senate, and I think he's a much better choice, a much better alternative, has a much better shot of beating Mitch McConnell than the, uh, than the establishment uh, candidate that uh, you know, is kind of being coronated by the, uh, uh, by the Democratic establishment right now. I think Charles is just a, a much better candidate. I encourage people to check him out. So all over the country, we've got really amazing candidates. And, you know, if you want to see what our candidates are like, uh, the Netflix documentary, Knock Down the House, is uh, tells the story of four brand new Congress candidates, um, uh, AOC and then Cori Bush, who's also running again in, in, in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, Paula Jean Swearingen is running in, in West Virginia. And then Amy Villela, who ran in Las Vegas, Nevada, and, and remains involved with, with brand new Congress, even though she's not running this time around, um, tells the story of, of our candidates. And I I even appear very briefly in in the film, and uh, but you know, so if folks are looking for something to do while they're you know self quarantining at home, um, I'd encourage them to, to check out Knockdown House, and you can see just you know the stories of you know real life people that are running for office, and and uh, you know the the kind of amazing people that Brand New Congress supports. Mm. Well, last question I have. Um, uh, 
you, you wrote in the, in the book, um, throughout the campaign, I came to understand the role that big money really plays in politics. Oh. And I experienced firsthand how the difficult, how difficult the po a political establishment makes it for regular people to run for office. Tell us a little bit more about the pledge that candidates have to sign in order to be part of brand new Congress. Yeah, we ask candidates to sign a pledge that they will not take corporate PAC money. Um, we think that that one of the most corrupting things in our political system is the influence of, of big money in politics. And what happens so often is um, the loyalty of our elected leaders are not with the people who vote for them, but rather with the people who fund their campaigns. And so if your campaign is funded by regular working people who are donating $27 at a time, um, you know, your loyalty is going to be with them. If, you're, if your campaign is funded by big corporate PACs and their lobbyists and special interest groups who are funneling millions of dollars into your, your campaign committees um, and, and the, you know, the, 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 the PACs that you've set up, uh, your loyalty is going to be with them. And, and we see like people wonder like, well, you know, there's, there's broad support on changes that need to be made to our healthcare system. Why can't those get, can't, why can't those get done? Uh, it's because our elected leaders are loyal to insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, not to regular people, not to regular working Americans. Um, uh, you know, we wonder like, why are there kids in cages? Um, well, it's because our elected leaders are loyal to the private uh, and for-profit prison companies that fund their campaigns and, and not to us. Why can't we get common sense gun reform when polls show the vast majority of Americans support it? It's because the loyalty of our elected leaders is with the special interest groups that fund their campaigns over at just about every single issue that you care about, that you wonder why can't this get done? Like it, those are all symptoms of the disease of how we fund our campaigns. And so, you know, brand new Congress candidates, um, you know, we ask them to take a pledge that they won't take any corporate PAC money. So their loyalty can be with, with regular working people, which is where we think, where we think it needs to be. If you want to stay connected with Rob with two B's, visit robryercy.com. Of course, follow him on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Go out and purchase Running for Our Lives wherever books are sold. Rob, thank you for teaching and modeling for us what it means to dare to do something great. Thanks, Andy. Really enjoyed the conversation today. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites, fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in there.